It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The big three, I guess, are nobody can work, nobody can transact, and then the government loses all legitimacy and the, the rule of law collapses. There's a reason they call us the, the dismal science. <laughs> Yo, technology, what is it all about? Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. We are back with another pod. So on the previous episode with Seth Bannon, I actually felt pretty encouraged. Some kind of rays of positivity there. Um, This one, I think, is a good way to kind of step back and look at the broader context of just these extraordinary times and what is required basically to get back to life as we know it, or some approximation of it. Uh, And to do that, in a Danny in the Valley first, we have brought on Nobel Prize winner Paul Romer, who won the Nobel back in 2018 for economics. So yes, there you go. Now we have Nobel Prize winners as well as billionaires and startup entrepreneurs and everybody else. And what you're about to hear is at the same time completely daunting but also wildly doable. And like our guest last week, Dr. Yonatas, it comes down very simply according to how Romer views it to testing, lots of testing, as well as protective equipment like face masks, etc. And both of which need to be produced and used on an industrial scale now. Anyhow, Romer is very forthright and clear-eyed about what is happening here, um, what needs to happen here. And I think you'll find it illuminating and though the terms he speaks in are quite stark, I also think there is reason for hope here because it feels all quite doable, like I said. So anyhow, here he is, Paul Romer, Nobel Prize winning economist, on how we got ourselves how we can get ourselves out of this extraordinary predicament in which we find ourselves. And to do so relatively quickly. Enjoy. Thanks for doing this. Glad, uh, <laughs> glad to be with you. So, I mean, I'm out here in California, so we've been in shelter in place now for going on two weeks. And personally, I've been working at home now for almost a month because the companies here started doing mandatory work at home or strongly suggested work at home probably earlier than most places in the States. So... I'm kind of looking at what's been happening here in the economy broadly, and I think it gets to the point of what it appears you've been kind of thinking about a lot, which is this idea of, you know, how do we walk the line, right, between saving lives and saving the economy? How do you think we're doing? (laughs) 
Yeah. The really terrifying and discouraging reality is that we face a very difficult challenge in the next, say, two weeks. There's just a kind of a binary choice between sticking with the measures that will keep the virus in check, the kind of stay-at-home isolation for everyone, or trying to return to normal life, but just accepting the fact that the virus is going to spread through the whole population and everybody's going to die. So this is a horrible set of choices to be faced with. I think we need to recognize that reasonable people might actually suggest we go one way or the other. And so we need to sort of turn down the emotional, moralistic temperature and just think about this, you know, logically. I think most people would say right now they want to stick with trying to save lives. But there are some who are trying to make the other side of the argument. My position with Alan Garber in this op-ed we wrote is slightly different. We're trying to say if we make some investments now, we could have better choices, like a middle ground choice in a couple of months, two months, three months. Whatever we do right now in terms of this awful choice between killing the economy and killing people, let's also do what we need to do so then two or three months, we've got better options. And it's very hard to get people to think about the future even a future that's like two months away when we're in the middle of a fight, which is about saving lives or saving the economy. And it's particularly hard when that fight turns moralistic. You know, you're killing people, you're killing the economy. So I think we need to just try and get everybody to step back, think rationally and say the reason that we have no good options right now is that we failed to make some investments in the recent past. Bygones are bygones. Let's not get you know moralistic about that, but let's not repeat that mistake. Let's make investments right now with sufficient resources so that in two months, we don't face this horrible choice between killing people or killing the gun. And what are those? I mean, I think I could probably guess what a couple of those investments are or the key ones are, but what, what are you talking about? Two things. First, we need to massively scale up the production of personal protective equipment. As part of scaling that up and you know, learning by doing as we go down that path, we need to improve its quality. We need to, need to make it easier to use, less difficult for somebody to say remove safely. So we need massive spending on protective equipment. And we need massive sp- spending to scale out and deploy the kinds of tests that we already have that could identify who's got the virus right now and who doesn't. So on the protective equipment, are you talking about for basically first responders, frontline people, or the masses? Uh, If you think of the sequencing here to get some better options, the first step would be to say, if we don't know who's got the virus, everybody should be wearing protective equipment. The clerk in the grocery store and the customer who comes into the grocery store. So this should be masks, at least. It might be face shields. Uh, It might be, we don't know yet, it might even have to be full suits. It's probably just masks. And even surgical masks are probably pretty good as as equipment. But we got to get some evidence on that. But until we test regularly enough so we know who's got the virus and who doesn't, everybody who's interacting needs to be wearing protective equipment. So 
get going right away with at least the masks, maybe the masks and the face shields, maybe gloves too, so that we're not infecting each other. But then start testing and get to the point where you can test frequently. And you could know, like, everybody should have a test within the last 14 days, the last seven days. People in the very high value occupations, like healthcare, first responders, utility, you know, employees, those people might need to be tested every, it might, might be beneficial to test them every day, because as soon as one of their colleagues comes into work who's infectious, you know, then it starts to spread amongst them, the other, other workers, and you lose this basic capacity. And then the quid pro quo is, if you want to go to the grocery store without wearing your protective equipment, you got to be able to show on the way in that you had a recent test. Or if you want to work in the grocery store without your protective equipment, you got to show that you had a, a, a negative test in the, the very recent few days. Those are things that we could do. We could scale out these tests and we could uh, get the protective equipment. The thing that is really stunning to me is that we're talking about spending $2 trillion on palliative care. This is like painkillers for somebody who's got cancer rather than a treatment where you just remove the cancer. So we're spending two million two trillion on palliative and we're not willing to spend like a hundred billion on expanding tests and protective equipment. A hundred billion spent aggressively quickly could completely scale out what we need in terms of testing and protective equipment. But for some weird reason we're not willing to think about spending, you know, those kind of funds on actually something that would let people safely go back to work. But yet we're, we're going to spend trillions, and it's probably not the only amount we're going to have to spend trillions to deal with an economy where it's not safe for anybody to go to work. Well, that's what it's um, the analogy that someone else on this podcast used was like it's it's like you know you're being chased by a bear and you can run up to the tree and then you're up into a tree and then you're safe in the tree. And then what? To get down from the tree in this context is mass testing, protective gear, whatever it may be. I like to call it ubiquitous testing. Yeah. Nothing you call mass is a positive. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Ubiquitous testing. I mean, that, that has to come. I mean, obviously, we have, and we have models to look at, right, in South Korea and, and China. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't quite say that. You know, this experience in Vo in Italy is probably the closest there were things they did in South Korea, like contact tracing. You know, we don't have the resources to do that. We, it's just, we're too far gone for that. So forget about contact tracing. But if we're testing everybody, you don't need contact tracing. You just presume everybody is potentially infectious. But, you know, just test everybody. And then you anybody who tests positive, they got to go into isolation for the required period. Anybody who tests negative, you're free to go until the next test. Yeah. But it's, it's funny because I, I think just this morning I saw there's a, and these are headlines, I haven't even been able to read the stories yet because it's all coming so thick and fast and I'm balancing yeah. kids who are running around downstairs. It appears that there will be some antigen test available quite soon yeah. to show that, you know, you've had this already because a lot of people obviously have had it um, and didn't yeah, know there's, it. Yeah, this is actually, this is complicated. And unfortunately, there really aren't good sources of clear information about this. We have a PCR test right now that identifies whether or not you got the virus in your system. Then there's an antigen test and then an antibody test. And the antibody test is um, likely to be introduced within days in the United States. It's already being used in South Korea. They may actually be using this antigen test as well. For some reason, 
there are lots of people who think somehow the antibody test or the antigen test is the is the miracle. I don't think the evidence is in on that. The PCR test is the one thing that we know will the virus test will say this person has already got the virus in their system. They're already shedding the virus. They need to go into quarantine. The antigen and the antibody tests are testing for a response your body makes to the virus. And we may not be able to test for the, that response until you've been infected for a long enough period of time. Like we don't know what you're gonna pick up with say this antibody test in this period where people are asymptomatic, but infectious. So the PCR test is a little more, you know, like capital intensive in terms of the equipment to do it. But if we spent the money, you could have a PCR test equipment set up in every every Walmart and, you know, in every post office. And so we could scale out the PCR test if we want. The antibody test could actually be one of these things like a pregnancy test where you do it at home. But unfortunately, the, the antibody test may not tell us what we need to well, know. Well, I think it, insofar as that it can tell people if they have already had it. I'm trying to get people to think about what are you going to do if you do an antibody test? It's like, okay, these people are positive for the antibodies, like they're past the infection. They can go back to work, fine. Okay, are you telling me you're going to say everybody else can go back to work because they don't test positive for the antibodies, so they're, they must be safe? So you're just saying everybody can go back to work? Why even bother to do the antibody test? That can't be right, okay? So it must be if you test negative for the antibody test, then we're in the same damn problem that we're in right now, which is that we don't know who's safe and who's not. And so you've got to have something like the PCR test, which again, it's existing technology. It's out there. It's available. So let's stop dreaming about the the home thing. Let's just scale out the thing that could actually make it safe. You know, the majority of the workforce, you can go back to work. Stepping back from, from what is required to kind of get this under control, which seems fairly clear, if very difficult to do, not difficult, not difficult. It just it would just take a hundred billion. Right. But just looking at what this what this may do, I was talking to somebody earlier who was talking about how SARS kind of changed how things you know, it kind of led to a boom in e commerce, for example, and led to people all of a sudden being much more comfortable with wearing face masks just yeah. out and around. Yeah. And just thinking about this in the in terms of work, do you see this being like a kind of an event? that will change the way companies operate? Not Some jobs aren't that changeable, but many are. Do you think this will kind of precipitate a massive change in how work is done? You know, I think, frankly, people are going to this because they don't have the mental energy to think about the hard questions. But I think this is like just such a side issue that I, I just don't even think it's worth talking about. If we're stuck with a choice between killing hundreds of thousands, millions of people, and you know, and watching people being turned away from hospitals, not getting respirators and so forth, if we're facing that versus a destruction of the economy that's worse than the Great Depression, you're going to see a lot of things change in this country and in the world, and you're not even going to be able to tell the difference between you know whether or not people are better at you know using video for remote work. That's just like such a trivial issue compared to the just the destruction of life as we know it that we're we're confronting right now. So I, I you know I don't I don't mean to be dismissive, but 
and I understand it's hard for people to think about a choice between, you know, killing hundreds of thousands or millions and watching the trauma of that versus destroying an economy. But that, unfortunately, is the choice we face right now. And we got to come to terms with it. And all I'm saying is, for God's sakes, let's make sure that's not the choice we're still facing in, in two months. If you know, if we, we we you know keep the economy just in this depressed state for a couple of months, I think we could still recover to um, some version of life as we know it. But you do this for twelve months, eighteen months, I think all bets are off. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Is there a precedent for something like this? I mean, obviously, the the cause is, as far as I can tell, pretty unique, even if you're talking about the the Spanish flu, you know, how long can we do this? How long can we all shelter in place and isolate and kind of have a huge, just huge swaths of the economy basically on ice? I think about it, think about the Christmas through New Year's. We pretty much shut the economy down for a week at that time. And, you know, it's something we plan for. Nothing bad comes of that. In Europe, things tend to slow down a lot during the summer. Yeah, so, you know, we could deal with slowdowns on on the kind of, I think, the one to three month kind of time horizon. But if you extend out beyond that, I think we're really into uncharted territory. And I think what you have to think about is think about the animosity and polarization that we're dealing with already. And then just scale that up by, you know, uh, some huge factor and ask, is this society going to be able to make any decisions? And especially make decisions when the choices are still really grim, choices between you know bad bad options. I, I think it would just be an incredible sign of irresponsibility if we leave ourselves open to the possibility that in three months the only choices available to us are the same ones that we're confronting right now. And you know, I keep trying to make this point with people, and they keep telling me I can't think about three months because we're facing such a terrible set of choices right now. But it's like, okay, why are we facing those terrible choices? Well, it's because people didn't plan and anticipate and make investments to keep us from facing these choices. Okay. So 
let's not replicate that mistake of failing to plan for what we're going to do in two or three months and and invest to make sure we've got some options at that point. How much of this is doable through private industry? Say the government is running around with its like a chicken with its head cut off, which feels yeah. that way here and lots of other places. Because as you say, the enormity of the choices are such that people maybe aren't thinking clearly and or strategically. Just in terms of what needs to happen, do you see companies stepping into the breach here and be yeah. like, okay, all of a sudden we're going to be yeah. pumping out yeah. reagents for PCR tests to a degree that you can go yeah. to Starbucks and yeah. have this with your morning coffee. Yep. Well, this is like the perfect storm, unfortunately. There are a set of circumstances that we're now facing, which mean that the market can't function. And here's what they are. Basically, people have emotional reactions, uh, visceral, moral, moralistic emotional reactions about a big increase in the price of something, which they know that a firm could make, like masks. They know that firms could make those masks, make a profit, sell them for a dollar in the past. And then suddenly, for the market to work right now, we might need the price of a mask to be $20. I mean, we might need it to be $100. We don't know. That is the market solution right now. But, but the, because of moralistic reasons, that people will simply not let that happen. We'll have laws against price gouging. We'll have firms that say, we don't want to take the reputational hit of you know, producing if, that, if that's the price we got to get. So the market is incapable of re- responding with the surge in production of like face masks that we need right, right now. Now, it, it's interesting to try and walk people through why the prices are so much higher. I mean, imagine you you have capital equipment that lost last 10 years, and those can turn out a certain number of masks each, you know, each day. If, you know, we had a supply of equipment that could make masks for the daily use in hospitals, suddenly we not want to scale that up from the people in hospitals to everybody in the economy. So, you know, we need we need way more. We've got a huge gap to fill right now. You might have to build out a whole bunch of production lines to fill the gap, but then when the virus is gone, we may not need those masks anymore. And so you're asking companies to buy equipment that could last 10 years, but they may even be able to use it for just, just a year. I mean, they might be a, a vaccine, for example, and we don't need the masks anymore. So they would reasonably say, well, we've got to charge a lot more now for these masks because we're going to have to pay for these machines and recover the cost of the machines in, in maybe just a few months, maybe just a year. And if everybody were rational and not moralistic about that, we'd say, yeah, it just turns out it's really expensive to ramp up production that that high. The masks are so valuable. Let's just go with the price of, you know, $100 a mask or $20, $50 a mask and get the masks we need. The market cannot do that right now. And any kind of hope that just get the government out of the way and it'll happen, it's not going to happen. So what we need is something like what, what happened during World War II, where the government finds a way to basically incur a big portion of the cost associated with the surge in production. For example, the government could say, we will buy and pay for the installation of the capital you need on your production line to make masks. And you can rent it from us at you know the current spot rate. If you decide in six months or three months, you don't need that capital anymore, it's fine. Comes back to us, we bear the cost if it turns out it's surplus equipment. The government could take that cost on and just let firms operate the, the the equipment. In World War II, this meant, you know, like paying to install 
new machinery for manufacturing by the by the government. If the government did that, it would be a way to make sure that the private sector can continue to supply masks at something like the price that the public thinks is morally justifiable. But it, it means that we've got to have a government which is willing to be rational and proactive and uh, make make things happen. You know, there's some bits and pieces we can take from the other reactions that country other countries have done, especially around testing. Do you have any sense that the cavalry is coming? That we are going to have ubiquitous testing. That 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 those the, the machinery, political and literal, is being put in place to do that. I think there's two outcomes if you look around countries across the world. One is that they will, you know, adopt a system where it's safe to go out and go to work and and consume if you test negative. Uh, they'll have the capacity for that kind of testing. I think other countries will be impossible of, of mounting that response. And then they're just going to let the, you know, the virus run wild. I don't think any country is going to just stay on lockdown for, you know, six months, 12, 12 months. There's just no way it's going to happen. Now that significantly complicates the, the challenge because this means that the virus is still going to be all over the world and it's still be coming into your country, you know, every day. So this this delusion that if we just have like a one month or a two week lockdown that stops the virus and then we're done, we just release everything. This is just, it's just like delusional because as soon as you remove the lockdown provisions, we're going to be right back with a rip roaring virus. So I, I wouldn't say the cavalry's coming, but just the hard reality of what's feasible is going to push some countries into letting the virus just um, run wild. It'll push other countries into scaling out of uh, the testing. And then we're going to live with this equilibrium where some countries have a lot of people who are still susceptible to the virus, a bunch of countries where nobody's really susceptible to it because they uh, they all caught it. That's where the world is, is going to go. But what we have to worry about is what's going to happen to our political systems, our social fabric in that kind of transition. Yeah. Just coming back to the economic piece. So let's say today is March 25th. We have theoretically another two weeks of shelter in place here. I imagine it will be extended. But let's say March 25th, April 25th, May 25th, they mm-hmm. lift that and there is testing in place, etc. And people can kind of return to, oh, return to life. Can I spin out a slightly different scenario sure, for you? Sure, sure. We start to scale out these tests because we got them already. Yep. You just start to scale them yep. out. And then you start saying to people, you can return to work and start working today if you've had a negative test in the last, you know, in the last seven days yep. or, or I don't know, maybe the last day, whatever you want to start with. Yep. That gives you a gradual way to start to scale up. And it gives an incentive for a lot of people to want to get tested. So, you're, you know, at least in the United States, you're not going to be able to mandate you know, testing for everybody. You're also not going to be able, I think, to mandate or implement, you know, like digital spying on people. I think it's crazy to talk about that. You're not going to need contact tracing. All you need to do is just say, if you can get a negative test, you've got a free pass to go about your daily business. And then there'll be a clamoring and a, you know, desire to scale up the tests. And then by by May, it could be that it's pretty easy for most people uh, to get a, get a test. So let's just say that that let's play out that scenario. 
in terms of the economic recovery, because I don't, I can't imagine what the kind of the fallout of all of this is going to be from an economic perspective. It's already quite dramatic. And say we're on, you know, lockdown of some form or fashion for another six weeks to two months. Is there a precedent with like the, a recovery from a shock like that? And how, what does that look like? If people can go back to work and go back to daily life, everything else can be managed. The biggest issue was going to be what to do about debt. There are going to be people who are in debt, who can't pay off their debts. Now, in normal times, we have a procedure for handling that. It's bankruptcy. The courts come in and say, okay, you can't possibly pay off everything you owe. Here's who gets paid. Here's who doesn't. You got a free pass. Okay, boom, everybody go back to work. That works fine when you've got a low frequency of bankruptcy. Um, We may be facing a much higher incidence of this. And so we may need a much higher throughput system for just like wiping out all of the, the debts. Because what's what could paralyze us is everybody is saying, I don't know if I can promise you anything because I don't know if I'm going to get paid on my promises. And everything is on hold until we get a, a judge to finally rule who gets paid what. So then you, you again, you, you, you paralyze everybody. I think one of the things the government could do to deal with that is to just step up almost automatically in this position of what they call debtor in possession, providing debtor in possession financing. It's like every firm, you know, can't pay its bills right now, goes to court. U.S. government says, fine, you know, we give you debtor in possession financing and the loans. And then, um, and then we, you know, we, we work it out later. At that point, you know, the existing creditors are, you know, are just told you're not going to get paid until later. The existing equity owners or all these corporations should be told, okay, you got nothing. You know, the government then says you with the debtor in possession financing is just temporary loan financing. You got to issue some new shares. You got to get, um, you know, you're going to have new owners you report to based on those new shares. And then away you go. But the point of the debtor in possession financing is it's kind of like United when it went into bankruptcy. United, United kept flying the planes. People could still travel. Workers got paid. We need to have a bankruptcy proceeding that's like that. I think that would be better than this idea of just like, you know, like bailouts and, and giveaways. But hell, you know, if it, if it has to be bailouts and giveaways, do that. That basically means just the taxpayers take on all the debt. And, you know, that would be, you know, kind of unfair. And I think it risks a political backlash. But, um, but you know, the, the key thing is we shouldn't let arguing about who owes whom what we shouldn't let that keep people from just going back to work. Right. That's got to be the, the, the goal. And then just lastly, if you had a kind of a dashboard of, I'll call it an, an oh shit dashboard of things that are going wrong. Is there one that you say, okay, if this threshold is crossed, then all bets are off. Or this is something that is really, truly catastrophic. Because right now it feels like the shock is so severe. No one I know has ever experienced anything like this, even 2008, 2000, et cetera. Nothing kind of compares. And it all feels so overwhelming yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah. But then you talk to a lot of economists like yourself and say, look, okay, this is, we can kind of bring this back. We haven't gone over the edge. What is the over the edge point? Well, there's two things to watch out for. One here is just a total liquidity crisis in the financial system. Nobody will lend anybody anything because they never know if they'll get paid back. And then we just like all transactions freeze up in the financial system. The Fed is, you know, very alert to this because of the 
crisis we went through in 2008, I think they can keep the financial system working. And in effect, they're, they're kind of like promising to just socialize, take on for all taxpayers, the, you know, the, the obligations of people who turn out not to be able to pay off their debts. But we should be watching for signs that the Fed loses control on the liquidity crisis. Then I think what we need to be worried about is getting into a situation where we're, we, are, we become a failed state. You need a government to make a modern society work. If you lose the capacity for the government to do its job, you can get stuck in kind of a trap that's very hard to get out of. When the government fails, uh, just totally fails, and you've got a failed state, um, then I think it's a lot tougher. We can revive an economy if you've got a functioning state. If we have, uh, but you know, all of the evidence in development assistance in the last 40 years shows us we do not how to know how to put a functioning state in place when you've got a failed state. I mean, a functioning system of government. So if we destroy our system of government, I mean, I hate to be so so grim about it. Um, Gordon Brown used to talk about how in establishing the rule of law, the first five centuries are always the hardest. <laughs> you know? If we have to go through five centuries to reestablish things like you know the rule of law yeah. enforced by a state, that's going to be a that's going to be a slow recovery. And that just completing that circle that gets back to we can't do a a lockdown for. St- six, 12, 18 months, it has to be a couple. Yeah, because I think within the horizon of like 12 months, you may have actually destroyed your system of government. And governments depend on certain kinds of subtle intangibles, like um, a perception of legitimacy. Unfortunately, you can destroy it a lot faster. That's what the risks are right now is frankly, you know, liquidity crisis where nobody can transact. But if nobody can work, it really doesn't even matter if nobody can transact. The big three, I guess, are nobody can work, nobody can transact, and then the government loses all legitimacy and the, the rule of law collapses. Let's see, it's 12.57. I'm just wondering how long before I can have a stiff drink today. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, um, you know, listen, there's a reason they call us the, the dismal science. <laughs> And listen, I am for, you know, for most of my career, I was the most optimistic economist I knew. But, um, you know, I think the evolution here is I'm still incredibly optimistic about what we could discover. If we spent $100 billion, we would discover so many ways to do PCR faster and to deliver it better and, and to find other tests. And, you know, probably there could be an antibody test that could identify within an hour of when you get infected with the virus. There's all kinds of things that we can discover. But what I've learned you know, over time is, is that you need both a functioning government and a market that can innovate. Yeah. The, the real risk that we're facing right now is that we're going to lose, lose the government. Right. You know, they've, they've just, I think they've finally hammered out this $2 trillion bailout, but I hope there's some way that some of that money finds its way to yeah. testing. It's all a bit unclear yeah. right now. Yeah. If you look back at 2008, you know, the TARP funds were allocated and then the um, the executive branch actually found a way to be a little bit flexible and creative about how they actually use the funds. It wasn't exactly what the Congress, you know, anticipated. So I hope even though there's no provision for testing and frankly, there's even no commitment on protective equipment in the stimulus bill, I hope the um, executive branch finds a way 
to commit. And I'm I'm serious about this. I mean, a hundred billion right now. Just and say you're going to spend it. You don't care. There's going to be some waste. There's going to be some chaos. Just do it because it, it, the, the risks you're facing are so huge compared to that. That 100 billion, when we look back, could look like just like a trivial, you know, insurance policy. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Paul for taking the time to chat. And I also wanted to add a postscript to um, the pod as it, literally as he and I were speaking, a, a release was put out by a company, one of the big U.S. healthcare companies. They did a study along with the University of Washington and in conjunction with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. What they basically found is a much easier test that can be self-administered was as accurate as the clinician much more involved much more difficult tests are currently and the fda has already based on that has approved these new kind of at-home tests which is a huge development and just shows how quickly things are moving here but that was literally came across the wires as he and i were speaking if you want to go check it out it is united united health group talking about their new COVID-19 at-home test, which is much easier to do and as accurate as the lab. So hopefully that means that will be coming soon and in large, large quantities. Anyhow, as ever, please stay safe, stay sane. We will be back, if not later this week, depending on what happens, um, definitely next week with more pods. Until then, have a great one. Bye-bye.